the traditional education model that we have is actually undermining critical thinking. It is responsible for killing curiosity and removing imagination from our children. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. everyone, welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington and I'm your host. And here at Curious Neuron, we provide you with scientifically informed parenting advice. Today, we have a very special guest. We are talking about critical thinking. And I can't wait to share the stats that I got from you in the audience on Instagram. If you aren't following us on Instagram, you could do so at Curious underscore Neuron. You can visit our blog at CuriousNeuron.com. Also, we have our podcast, obviously, and we have research labs that we collaborate with that you could join on our, our website so you can visit that at kirstenron.com. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here in Montreal at the Neuro that support the Kirstenron podcast. So thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast as well, you can leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Send me an email at info at and I'll send you a free PDF to thank you for the review. Our guest today is Julie Bogart. She is known for her common sense parenting and education advice. She's the author of the beloved book, The Brave Learner, which has brought joy and freedom to countless home educators. Her new book, Raising Critical Thinkers, offers parents a lifeline in navigating the complex digital world our kids are confronting. Julie's also the creator of the award-winning innovative online uh, writing program called The Brave Writer, now 22 years old, serving 191 countries. She home-educated her five children who are globe-trotting adults. Today, Julie lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and can be found sipping a cup of tea while planning her next visit <laughs> to one of her lifelong learning kids. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Julie. Oh, that's a great introduction. So <laughs> nice to meet you, Cindy. And thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for coming. I'm excited for this conversation. I think critical thinking is lacking, <laughs> but we can get into that after. And also, I had... So I thought I was a good critical thinker, and so did 67% of the audience at Curious Neuron. I was curious because last week I introduced you, or earlier this week I introduced you, and said, you know, what are your questions around critical thinking? And I didn't get any questions. That was the first time. So I said, okay, there's something missing here because I know that I am struggling and trying to figure out how to teach this to my kids. How do we not have questions? So I reposted the questions a little differently. And I said, I asked the audience, you know, do you think you're a great um, critical thinker? And 65 or 67% said yes. The follow-up question to that was, do you know how to teach your children how to think critically? And then 47% said, no, I have no idea. <laughs> so you know, and I, I, I fell in the boat of, I think I'm a good critical thinker, but after reading your book, I was like, oh, I got this all wrong. <laughs> I really need to rethink this. So there's a lot to talk about today, but I do think that we think we know how to think, <laughs> if I could say it that way, and we need to relearn all of this. And your book helps. <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I've been on more podcasts that are hosted by men for this one, this book than ever before. Wow. And to a person, every dude thinks he's a great critical <laughs> thinker, no matter what views they hold. 
And mm. I notice it's similar to the way everyone feels like they're a good driver. <laughs> yeah. So it's always somebody else who's a bad driver, but it could never be me. Yes. It's because when we're in charge, mm. we feel confident and convinced. So um, if you notice in my book, I talk about the way that we construct our worldview. Mm. We are shaped by our individual perceptions. And then we're also shaped by what I call a logic story, the reasonableness mm of a viewpoint that our community adopts. When we combine those two, the internal coherence of our views with the mixture of our own experience, personalities, and backgrounds makes us feel like we're doing a good job of thinking. <laughs> and within that context, we are. But so is every other person who feels equally convinced that their own thinking is logical mm. and coherent and addresses and accounts for all the pieces of experience and data that that individual, me, you, has available. Mm. So the reason we think we're good critical thinkers is we feel persuaded by our own brilliance, <laughs> by our own research, by our own perspectives, because we have access to all the data points that created that perspective. But when we're looking at another person, we don't have access to all those data points. So we assume that the logic they're putting forth is not critically thought through, that it's coming from a shallow treatment of the subject mm. or an inability to perceive some missing bit of information. Mm. But the truth of the fact is they are as persuaded of the way they've organized all the information, data, research, experience, background, as you are. <laughs> and they've just drawn a different conclusion. And in both cases, critical thinking has played a huge role in arriving at that conclusion. Mm. So I would say it this way. We are all good critical thinkers for our own views. I, there are places where we can grow, change, fix, of <laughs> course, but that comes through encountering views that are not ours. Mm. We do not adopt a changed view without intersecting with data, information, experiences, and backgrounds that are dissimilar to ours. Mm. If we stay in our groups, we actually never have to be critical thinkers about our perspectives at all. So- to recap, both are true. Yeah. You feel like a good critical thinker and you probably are. And there's so much room to grow to actually employ that skill in relationship and conversation with others. Mm -hmm. That's such a good way to start this conversation because it's true. Um, you know, one thing that I've, I've had some discussions with people and obviously the past two years have led to a lot of heated discussions in families. Um, and one thing that kind of gets to me is, is reading titles or headlines and sticking to that as facts. And you open your book by describing the difference, right? Like, because we, sometimes I've had discussions with pe with people and it's their interpretation of something, but they'll um, put it out there as fact. And we really right. have to, I love that you really broke that down at the beginning of your book because it got me thinking. And at least now also in conversations, I can say, hold on a second that, you know, I, I'm able to pinpoint and say, we need to really think about, it. and for myself as well, because we do, like you said, once we're with somebody else, it really changes and we're, it's hard to kind of navigate all of that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So yes, the reason that I define the terms at the beginning of the book is that I realized, actually, I was way into the book when I added this chapter and put it in huh. chapter two. And the reason hmm. was, is I noticed I was using words like perspective and worldview. And I thought, I wonder if people are going to use those interchangeably. And then I started mm -hmm. thinking about the word opinion and the way we use opinion, in my view, more like bias or perspective mm -hmm. 
than the way I want to use it. Now, if you go to a dictionary, it's going to say opinion is, you know, somebody's perspective or belief, because that's the way we typically use it. But when I think about opinion, like in the legal sense, or if I think about opinion in the scientific sense or in the academic sense, like writing a paper with a thesis, opinion actually rises to a different level. It is supposed to be substantiated by data or research or corroborated by expert opinion. And expert opinion is what I'm really talking about here. So I I agree with you. When we have someone just sling a, a comment on Facebook like, well, that's just my opinion. What we're really hearing them say, that's just my experience, or that's just my background, or that's just my perspective, or that's just my bias. So what we can ask a person to do in that circumstance, we don't have to make them redefine the word opinion. We don't have to say, well, actually, you should be writing what the Supreme Court writes to express their viewpoint. But we can come back and say, well, do you have some data? What what data are you relying on? Or who are the experts you trust and who are the experts you don't trust? Because that's going to tell you a lot about how they arrived at their opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Most of our communities do a lot of vetting on our behalf. Like, I can't be an expert about scientific things. I've never had the training or the background. So let's just take climate change as an example. If I read an article by someone who says climate change is real and they provide data, research, and expert opinion, I'm easily persuaded. But then if you give me the expert opinion of someone who believes that we're just in an ice age coming up and it's natural and it doesn't have anything to do with uh, you know human consumption of fossil fuels, when they supply research, mm-hmm. data, and expert opinion, the only thing that would make me not accept that is if my community has already discounted those mm-hmm. beliefs yeah. as valid to consider. Otherwise, mm-hmm. and this is actually how I feel about most things related to climate, I never feel that I have enough data to, to judge the research. So what do I have to do? I end up turning to the community I've already endowed with authority to pre-screen ideas and people. I kind of call it the cable package of your beliefs. Like you're getting (laughs) sold a whole bunch of channels when you join a political party or a religious organization or an academic Mm -hmm. context or even a field like let's say you're a therapist or you're somebody who works in engineering. Those Mm -hmm. professions are going to shape how you vet data and they are going to tell you who to trust, who not to trust, Mm -hmm. what their tendencies are. But we do all this unreflectively and we act like we're coming from a source of authority that is our own when really we've already delegated it. We're just subscribed to the channel of our favorite loyalty group. Mm. You know, this makes me think of the the says who part of the beginning of your book. And this is something that, you know, as we slowly transition from how we think critically to teaching this to our kids, um, this is something that I had never really thought of. And it's weird because I, I do it for myself, but I hadn't thought about it for my kids. Mm. And now I've done, my kids are two, four, and six. Ah, and very little. I've <laughs> Yeah, they're very little. However, just hearing that part or reading about that says who, I started reading the title of the book, like you've mentioned. And it's just a simple change that I want them to understand that says who this book was written by somebody and then as they'll get older and I could do this with a six-year-old you know reading different books by that person and understanding that I had never thought about this so 
you know, when it comes to critical thinking, I had asked parents, what, how do you define it? And they thought a lot, you know, they defined it as deep thinking or thinking outside the box. But there's so much more that we need to start thinking about as parents to send this, you know, to pass this to our kids. Fine. Can you explain the se- says who yes. part of your book? Yes. So one of the things that we need to recognize is that nothing comes pure. Mm-hmm. We, we don't get a fact. We get a fact in a story. So if you even just read information, the way it's written, the way the research is laid out, which item gets first place in a paragraph, even if all you do is strip the data, just the sequence of the data alone is telling a story. So Mm -hmm. part of what I wanted people to understand about critical thinking is that we want to figure out who the narrators are. You know, there's a a fabulous musical called Into the Woods. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, It's by Stephen Sondheim. He's a brilliant writer. And it starts with all the traditional fairy tales. And he's telling them sort of combined together how those stories might have actually all been a part of this shared fairy tale world. And there is a narrator who comes out and comments as things are happening. He gives sort of the overview perspective. Uh, You know, spoiler alert, in the second act, he gets killed. So suddenly there's no one telling the story and it becomes this very subjective, confusing experience. That's a little bit what I'm saying is that when there's a narrator, let's say we say the narrator is the disembodied voice um, accompanying a film reel or or a nonfiction documentary style movie. That narrator, though, is still shaping your experience. It's still Mm -hmm. guiding you through information in a selected sequence for a specific purpose. So our first job with our kids is to make this visible, to stop having it be invisible. And the example, of course, that I use in the book is the story of the three little pigs. Yes. So I love it. Yeah. So I had been narrating this story with my oldest child when he was like three years old to the point where he knew it by heart. He wanted to hear it every day. And um, one day we're inside the library and I see this book by John Shuska called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. And I thought, oh, he's hilarious. I know this author. He's so fun. So I brought the book home and I start reading it to Noah. And it turns out this story is told from the wolf's perspective. Now, John Shedska is writing for two audiences. He's writing for the parent who has to read books aloud to their small (laughs) children. And he's writing for the child. So the adult immediately is going to catch on to the inside jokes, the way he is using this silly defense that this um, wolf is making for himself we will immediately think of trials of criminals who make up a stupid phony defense. Like we have a whole sort of collection of experiences that help inform how we read that, but our children don't. And for Noah, the very first experience was like, wait, what? There's another way to think about this story. I mean, those aren't the words he used, but he was delighted and curious. And how do we know if the wolf is telling the truth, right? Like that's, That's what he was indicating with his reactions. Interestingly enough, I shared this story in the book and my staff on Brave Writer, there are a selection of those staff members who are about the age of my son. And they said that when they were growing up and read the book, when it first came out, they thought it was the true story. Like without a parent who had a conversation about it, they were like, well, it has the word true in it. Here's the story. The wolf is retelling it. This must be what happened. Mm -hmm. But really what we're being offered is two versions of the same story. And it's the first time for a lot Mm -hmm. of kids when we use a book like that, that they encounter that perspective 
shapes how the story Mm -hmm. is told. And that's the part I think that we're missing that we don't think, you know, that a child who's under five, that we need to start working on critical thinking. I don't think we see the importance and the ways that we can do it in such small changes in our home. That's, I told my kids, my four and my six-year-old about this. I I don't have his book, but I told him after I read your book. And they were like, I never thought about that. Yes. It's true. Like, what about the wolf? We never hear his story, you know? Like, it's such a beautiful way to have a conversation and start planting small, not not seeds, but having small conversations around this. You know, and you bring in also the identity and you have a poem. Yes. You know, these are all such small parts that we can start doing it with with our children. So just to give you a background as well, our audience here at Curious Neuron mostly have children under eight and even more so under five. Got it. So how would you bring in that poem or helping your child understand their identity as well as as a young child? Yeah. So in the book, we talk about identity because it is probably the most basic way that we form our points of view, you know, from the time you're born all the way to adulthood, you know, I'm 60. So still Mm -hmm. those early childhood experiences shape what you think is normative for people. So if you grew up in an apartment, that's a different experience than in a house. If you grew up in a neighborhood where people look like you, that's different than if you grew up in a neighborhood where they don't. If you grew up in a religion Mm -hmm. that was celebrated in your school, that one feels like it's what most people are. If you didn't, you have a different feeling about yourself. So at a very early age, Mm -hmm. what we're actually wanting is for our kids to recognize that there are many valid ways to live. One of the ways that we do this is not necessarily by being heavy handed, like, well, my skin color is this and our neighbors is that. And therefore we see the world differently. It's actually by valuing difference within your family. The tendency in a family is to have what I call the parental propaganda program. It is the view that the adults are creating or curating of what makes reality make sense. And we exclude what our kids think makes sense all the time, automatically. So the example I want to use is um, think of your child, five years old, and you say, it's time for dinner. Go wash your hands. And your five-year-old says, I don't want to wash my hands. What do most parents do? (laughs) What what do they usually say? Why wash your hands. And then what do they say as the reason (laughs) for washing hands? You have germs on your hands. You need to wash your hands before you eat. Yeah. And why, why do we say that? What are we worried about with germs? That they get sick. Right. So parents go into this parental propaganda Mm -hmm. program and they're identifying some source called science about germs. Is it true? Mm -hmm. Didn't that child just eat three Cheerios off the floor (laughs) and not get sick? (laughs) Didn't you just pick up the pacifier off the floor, lick it in your mouth and then stick it in your baby's mouth? Mm -hmm. Do we actually believe that germs Mm -hmm. get transferred from hands without dirt, you know, just regular hands Mm -hmm. when they eat dinner. Mm -hmm. Don't we use forks? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes the parent (laughs) assume? Have we vetted the source of authority? Is it actually just habit? Is it cultural pressure? Mm -hmm. Is it a belief structure that we've adopted uncritically? Mm -hmm. So here's your child challenging you to actually vet your Mm -hmm. own source. And of course, when COVID started, hand-washing was important, right? So two things I would recommend. For most of the time, when a child says something like that, we can actually invite them to do their own data collection. So a five-year-old who says, I don't want to wash my hands, and you think, well, God, they really need to, you would say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Why don't you want to wash them? 
Oh, I hate the water. Oh, is it too cold, too hot, too forceful? Child's like, I just don't like the way it feels. Tell you what, I'm going to get a thermometer (laughs) and we're going to like start measuring the temperature and you're going to tell me when you stop hating it. So now you're reading out temperatures, you're testing the water and your child, because we're going to use the least cooperative child ever for this example, (laughs) is like, that's not it. I still hate washing my hands and now you made them get wet. All right. Well, maybe next time what we'll do is we will do um, hand sanitizer. That dries fast. No, I hate hand sanitizer. It's sticky. I hate it. Okay. Let's see. Well, here's the thing. I'm worried about germs and I've done some research and I know that heat kills germs. I wonder if for like a week, we can just use a blow dryer. We won't use water at all. I'll just blow dry your hands (laughs) with heat and we'll just trust that that's killing the germs. Would you be up for that? Now, a lot of five-year-olds would think that's just great fun because it's so antithetical to what they've been taught. So maybe you try that for a little while, but could you not also just roll the dice? Say, tell you what, I'm rethinking whether or not this is dangerous Mm -hmm. to you. And while I'm rethinking it, you don't have to wash your hands. Uh, And let's just see in a week if you get sick. Now, that's an interesting thing to say to a child. Let's see if you get sick. Your child may not want to. So that might be enough to switch Mm -hmm. them over. But they also might be like, yeah, let's find out. And, you know, the garden variety sickness from your hands being dirty is a cold. You know, like it's you're not going to get measles. You're not going to get the mumps. So part of this fear that we have is that we aren't willing for our children to draw conclusions that Mm -hmm. don't align with the beliefs we already hold that we hold uncritically. Mm -hmm. So you can't do this for everything. Sometimes you just got to put on their shoes so they can go to Target. I know that's a hard one for parents. That's right. Too, yeah. Brushing yeah. teeth is a really hard yeah. one. So can you just go down the rabbit hole for one thing once yeah. in a while, every couple of mm-hmm. weeks and actually vet it? Now, if it were COVID and or let's say if a child is really cavity prone and it's it's very important and you don't want to roll the dice, could you then work harder to give them the evidence instead of just taking your word mm-hmm. for it? Could you get a microscope? scrape their skin and look at the cells that are healthy versus dirty? Could you grow mold on bread so they can see how invisibility becomes visible? Could you show them the pictures of the COVID virus online so that they know this thing exists and it's magnified, you know, and tell them what the magnification is. They love big numbers. They'll be impressed by that, right? (laughs) So help your kids actually have data that they observe, that they collect, that they experience research that backs up these decisions. And if you do have to play the parental card of authority, at least you do it with as much understanding of what your child needs in order to think well, not to just blindly obey a source authority because they were told to. You know, I think that's a big struggle for parents as well, because of the way that some of us were raised, where it's, what I say goes, right? My mom would say like, put your hat on and your scarf. Why? I don't like it <laughs> because it's cold outside and you'll, you'll get sick. And it was just like, just do it, right? Or go to bed because if you don't go to bed by seven, something will happen to you or whatever it was. But I think what I've learned from both of your books um, is, so there's The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. These books have taught me and it's something I would follow, but I've now it's more on my mind that we really need to listen to our kids. And the more we listen yeah. to them, the more we build this relationship with them. It's not about not having that authoritative figure. It's not about you're it's not being their best friend and not being a parent anymore, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions in no. society about that. It's, it's about listening to them and caring enough to hear them. 
And like you said, to give them that ability to think for themselves, right? That moment where we've taken right. away the I said so or because I said so, you are letting them think. And that's what's going to lead to that's a lifelong it. Learn lifelong learning and thinking on their end. So Maria Montessori has mm. my very favorite quote, and it is follow your child, but follow as his leader. Mm. So we tend to lead our children and expect them to follow. But what if when your child defies mm -hmm. what your expectation is, you followed, but as his leader. So you offer suggestions, you consider additional data, you critically think about the way you think, like you could model this huh, you're right. I do always tell you to wash your hands. And yet you just ate Cheerios off the floor. That does seem inconsistent. I want to think about that. Yeah. Tonight, don't wash your hands. I'm not prepared to discuss this mm -hmm. yet. You have shown me a flaw in my thinking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what if we said something like that? Wouldn't that be shocking? Yeah. <laughs> because now we're modeling, but we're also actually living. Mm -hmm. Like one of my least favorite things is this idea that parents model things. It's, it's sort of as though instead of it actually being like, I'm going to model on-time behavior. How about just being on time? <laughs> like there's no modeling, like be on time. If you're modeling on-time behavior, what you're saying is today, I'm making a point of being on time. Usually I'm not on time. And, and we have a lot of those phony things in our lives. You know, we say sleep is really important. And then we stay up to one in the morning and then we're tired and cranky the whole next day. And then we blame our kids who weren't tired at seven for staying awake in their beds till they were nine. And then our crankiness, we actually transfer to them. We say, well, they're cranky. No, actually, maybe you yeah. are. Maybe you stayed up <laughs> till true. one. It's true. Yeah. Right. Mm. So this, like, be more actually true to who you are. Tell the truth. Well, you caught me off guard. You don't want to wear shoes with laces. <laughs> and you hate that I tie them. And it feels tight. This is all the information you're giving me. And we really do have to get out the door. And I don't have any other options for you for shoes. What can we do while I consider how to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. Because today you're going to have to, but I, I got mm -hmm. it. You don't like this. This is staying with me. I am going to problem solve for mm -hmm. X. X is shoes without laces that still look nice. <laughs> you know, this is an actual story that happened with me. My daughter hated tying shoes and you know, of course we got into the predictable battles. She was only my second child by my fifth kid. I didn't care what they were. They could walk in bare feet as far as I was concerned. But with the second child, you know, there's proper things. You should wear shoes and they should be tied. Um, and she didn't want to learn. You know, I got all those special little tools for them to practice. And I showed her the bunny ears a thousand times. And then one day I was flipping through the Hannah Anderson catalog and these beautiful yellow clogs <laughs> popped out on the page. And I was like, okay, for centuries, Dutch children have been wearing slip-on shoes. Those parents know something I don't yeah, know. Exactly. So I bought clogs. Yeah. She learned to tie her shoes in 10th grade, just for your audience mm -hmm. to know. Mm. We just, we, we just problem solved for X. Mm -hmm. Like, is there a moral uh, requirement that children know how to tie their shoes mm -hmm. before they want to? Now she had to play soccer, but I tied the shoes. And I didn't turn it into a, a decision around morality. Mm -hmm. She just got to a point where it was inconvenient. And then she learned in a minute, right? She learned <laughs> in a minute. Yeah. So all of the parenting pain went away and we just solved for X mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that makes me think of society and learning and education as a whole, because I, I'm homeschooling. Some might know or some might not, but I, I'm homeschooling my six-year-old and 
it's not something that I had envisioned. It's something that happened because of COVID. I'm home and I said, you know what, let's just do this. They hadn't been to preschool or daycare. And it's been a battle of loving every moment and also struggling with every moment. And it's been hard because I'm stuck in the old way of thinking. You know, because of research, I know, you know, this open-ended play has always been part of our home and less structure and, and so on. But now moving into the learning how to read and math for the first time, we'll learn, you know, odd numbers and even numbers on walks and looking at addresses. And I get that part, but it's so hard to unlearn. And it's not about uh, uh, unschooling and all of that, but it's so hard to unlearn a system that we've been yes. part of. That And what you just mentioned just makes me think of that, right? Like your child should know this by that age, putting them into these boxes when in the end your child will learn. And I posted, I think it was about two weeks ago, I said, critical thinking is more important for young kids than ABCs. (laughs) It it blew up, but (laughs) I got some love and hate for it. And what I'm, I wasn't saying that they should not learn how to read. That's not what I was saying. But I think that as a society, we've become so focused on the academic skills of a child, like learning how to write and read early. A child doesn't need to know how to read at three years old, but emotional skills and socially emotional skills and, and, and critical thinking skills like you bring up here, I think we've forgotten about because we're placing oh. so much importance on the other stuff. So I, I I hope you will permit me. We have a new product coming out for yes. five to seven-year-olds called The Quill, and it teaches reading, writing, and actually math. We're brave writer, and we're actually entering math because every subject is about literacy, yes. every single yeah. one. Mm. But literacy is not, it does not start with abstract symbol to meaning. It actually starts with the tactile, manipulative base mm-hmm. It moves to mental images and then it moves to abstraction. So what's missing. So when a parent says ABCs, what they're forgetting is it actually takes critical thinking to learn phonics. Mm. It takes critical thinking to learn the symbols of math. So what our program is doing is actually creating the thought world, the context for phonics to thrive. So if you have a child who right now is like hates phonics, there's a reason. It's not because they're behind. It's also not because they're strong-willed. And it's also not because the program is problematic. It's that the foundation that makes phonics meaningful has not been laid. You have actually skipped developing the literacy required. So Mm -hmm. think of it this way. Imagine your little baby and they start cooing at, you know, three and four months. I have a, a little grandson right now who's just coming into two months and he's starting to make all those adorable sounds. I love it. Right. And then over the next couple of months, those sounds are going to change and grow Mm -hmm. and eventually become a word. There is no point at which a parent listening to a cooing or early verbal child that they think, okay, I need to teach them to speak. Mm -hmm. They do not think that. What do they provide? They provide a context where communication is so rich around that child, that child wants in. Mm -hmm. The child wants in. And the parents do all kinds of things. I was reading this amazing book. It's coming out in July called Reading for Our Lives by Maya Smart. She's just brilliant. And she was basically describing that when parents respond to the baby and they use sing-songy voice and language, like they have intuitively learned that children encode that to mirror speech. Mm. That's why they start forming words because of these cadences that we do with cooing that actually mimic the way speech is organized. Mm. 
do we do this with reading? We do not. We go straight from speech to, okay, here's an abstract symbol called an A. But <laughs> but here's That's what true. kids are doing all the time. They're already reading. I remember the first time my granddaughter, when she was, I don't know, 12, 13 months old, I handed her a book upside down and she flipped it right side up. Why did she know to do that? She can't read. How good was her symbol recognition to know that the baby face was upside down Mm. and she wanted it to look like right side up? Mm. We are already reading. They're reading your facial expressions. Mm. They're reading your body language. Mm -hmm. You know, a little baby that reaches for the shirt and starts pulling it up has figured out where the breast is. Mm. This is (laughs) reading. Yeah. They are reading. Mm. So why do we not capitalize on those skills by layering in tracing the A with a finger, saying the sound when we walk by it? Um, My youngest daughter, she did not read until she was almost 10. She had four older siblings who were fluent readers. Mm. She had parents who taught writing and were readers. She had never seen a single one of us sound out. So here I am like, trying to get her to do phonics. I mean, I had four other kids who were readers. So why is this program not working? And I kept switching programs. There were lots of tears, lots of confusion. Me not, she did not have a learning disability. That was very clear. She had been physically writing since she was three years old. And just to be clear, she thought she was writing her thoughts. Like she was having thoughts and moving a pen. She hid her books so that we couldn't read them and know her thoughts. So writing was clear to her. Reading was not. And I finally realized, and it happened accidentally, that she thought reading was fluency. So when we were doing sounding out, it felt like it was proof that she was not actually reading. Mm. So I started studying Greek at that time. I was in grad school and I started doing my Greek um, copy work while they did their handwriting copy work. And Katrin was using handwriting books and she got interested in Greek. And so we started, I started teaching her the Greek alphabet. I'm like, she doesn't know the English one. So what's the difference? Just teach her any alphabet. It'd be great. And I mean, she knew the, she knew the letters, but she wasn't reading yet. And she wanted to make place cards with our names on them in Greek. I had to sound out our names to figure out which letters to use. The light went on. Uh, Oh, an adult sounds out. I was using it for a real skill. It was not felt as artificial laid on top of her. It was actual for her. Hmm. And without me knowing it, she applied that skill to English, like up in her bedroom privately without anyone watching her like a hawk. And I share this with you because I missed a step with her because she was the youngest. Hmm. The other kids saw other siblings sounding things out. They saw us working Hmm. through this phonics stuff. By the time it was her turn, we were well past that. Mm. And so sometimes what we're trying to accomplish with our kids is we're moving them to abstraction so quickly. We don't train their brains Mm. to capitalize on the little tiny skills that are going to support the development of that abstract experience. Mm. I I agree with you. You know, even with the reading, I don't like you mentioned before, turning a book upside down or if it's upside down, turning it right side up. We don't realize that those are the baby steps to get to the other, to the right. reading part. And we we try to push things forward a little too quickly sometimes. And there are so many little steps in between, um, but we don't appreciate those. And we don't realize that our children need those as well. Well, mm. in, and in fact, I wrote about reading in this book mm. and it was only supposed to be one chapter. 
And there was so much material. I had to divide it into two because the first chapter is all about this sort of symbolic abstract literacy that our kids are mastering without any help from us. They figure out the men's from the women's bathroom based on the signs. That is a two-dimensional image Mm. that doesn't look anything like a woman or a man, Mm. by the way. Mm -hmm. They're just (laughs) a shape, right? They're taking their Lego sets and they're actually looking at three-dimensional Lego pieces Mm -hmm. and they are building based on a two-dimensional illustration with Mm -hmm. no words and no help. How are they doing that? That is reading. If, if if we could even recognize that they're recognizing our facial expressions, like when we look frustrated or discouraged <laughs> or sad, have you ever had a two-year-old walk up to you and say, oh, mama, are you sad? Yeah. Or mad. Yeah. <laughs> they know. Yeah. They know. <laughs> this, is, this is reading. They are learning to match abstraction to something meaningful. Mm. Numbers. They're doing it all the time with the count. My little granddaughter only knows, she's two. She only knows how to count to two. And it's it's still just, it's a game. She doesn't know the one-to-one correspondence, mm. but I wear two rings. And so whenever she sees my hands, she goes one, two ring, one, two <laughs> ring, right? Yeah. But she knows a lot of numbers because my, my um, son and daughter-in-law use numbers and count things all the time. They're just doing it very naturally. So now what she does is she goes one, two ring, six, eight, three, five, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> my right? son like, does that, yeah. <laughs> but what is she doing? She's mimicking the cadence of recitation, mm. but there's no meaning behind any of that. So the mistake we make is, oh, now she's ready to see the symbols. Well, sure, she can marry the names to the symbols, but that has nothing to do with one-to-one correspondence, the idea of collecting or diminishing quantities, um, proportion, scale, none of that. It means nothing to her right now. Where do we go from there? We get her a workbook that says one plus two equals three. And all we get her to do is read. Mm. She's reading. She's Mm. reading one. She's reading the plus. She's reading the two. Mm. She's reading equals three. Does she actually grasp that we just took one thing, added two things and got to three? Not in a lot Mm. of workbooks. (laughs) And I will tell you, I was that girl. It was not until I taught my son my oldest son, multiplication in fourth grade. So I was in my thirties that I realized multiplication meant multiples. I am a word person. (laughs) I did not know what seven times eight was until about two years ago. Mm. I could never remember Mm. because I did not understand. When I started doing um, multiplication with Noah, we used Cuisinier rods and manipulatives. And I was shocked by regrouping. I was in my (laughs) thirties. I'm relearning a lot too with my daughter. (laughs) But how horrible is that? And I was not Mm. good at math for my whole life Mm. because Mm. I never actually caught on Mm. that multiplication was an addition shortcut. Mm. I had no regrouping skills. It was pure memorization. Mm. And so Mm. the end for me was algebra two. Mm. And I had a teacher who asked me to quit the class and he would give me a B (laughs) so that I wouldn't hurt my GPA. That was his solution. Mm. It, that's not a good solution. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. We don't want that for our kids. But it's all about the grades, right? So as long as right. you get the grades and you maintain them, then you're fine. You'll move on. But right. then you'll be 30 still under, not understanding the basics of multiplication, which I get. I'm in the same boat. It's wow. 
and you know having to relearn all of these things with my daughter has been really interesting and saying like nobody ever took the time to look into it and now what you also taught me is i've been so focused on blending sounds and so on but i wasn't yes. thinking about the creative aspect i wasn't thinking about helping her find her voice and her writing you didn't mention before that there's a writing section in yes. your critical thinking book. Parents might be wondering, like, why, how, how does this make sense? Can you kind of paint the picture of why this is important? Yeah. So all of what we do is make meaning. We're just mm. meaning, obsessive meaning-making machines. That's what human beings are. <laughs> That's what sets us apart, actually, mm. from the rest of the animal kingdom. Mm. They are in function all the time. We're not. We leave function to reflect, to generate meaning, ideas, and thoughts. So when we read, we're taking in information. Reading itself is nothing. It's, it's literally like a hammer for a nail. It's just a tool <laughs> so that we can consume thoughts and ideas. Mm. So when we're reading, we're taking in information. Writing and verbal skills are expressive. It's when we digest the food of thought and now we create and build something with it. We grow the data, information, research, ideas, thoughts that exist in the world to make this world a better place ostensibly. I mean, that's the goal. We don't want to blow it up and ruin it. We want to improve it. And I think our track record is actually phenomenal for improving it, by the way. I do want to just throw that out there. I'm not a doomsday person. I'm a technological <laughs> optimist. And I really believe the problems technology creates, technology solves. Like I think that's where we're headed. Mm. So when we talk about reading and writing and math, what we're really actually talking about is the core tools we use to generate meaning. Mm. Critical thinking is about meaning generation. So why are we learning math? Why are we learning it? We're not learning it to pass tests. We're not mm. learning it to get into college. And if we're an engineer at the end of this job, you know, this journey, we're learning it to make meaning of numbers that create structures that hold bodies so we don't die, bridges and buildings and houses. Um, we have people who are creating thought worlds for us in therapy to keep us emotionally and psychologically healthy. We have scientists examining our bodies and medicine in order to overcome a pandemic. We are generating meaning. The numbers matter because they help us define and describe the world we live in, but they are not interesting on their own. It's true. Letters and alphabet is not interesting on its own when we only make the end goal. If our children think the end goal is passing a test, we lose interest. This is mm. why kids hate school. They're losing mm -hmm. interest. It has no relationship to meaning generation. And that's what's crossing my mind right now. Like the parents that have these children that are coming home from school and they're struggling with homework. I hear it from my friends. Ugh. You know, even kids in grade one or grade three that don't want to do their homework. Mommy, it's boring. Or daddy, I don't want to do this. I don't understand. I'm not good enough. I keep failing the test. This is happening, you know, especially in the past two years where Ugh. they were mixing Zoom school and, and, and being there presently, you know, in, in so school. So hard. How, how do we come back from that? How do we bring back or reignite the passion for learning in our kids when they're programmed right now to think that I just need to pass that test and that's all that matters. But where is the bigger picture, you know, the bigger, the love for learning itself? It's difficult with school. I mean, mm. I made a pretty bold thesis that the traditional education model that we have is actually 
undermining critical thinking, that it mm-hmm. is responsible for killing curiosity and removing yes. imagination from our children. Mm-hmm. We have research mm-hmm. to show that the kids who come into school with this active imagination that helps them problem solve and learn is gone by sixth grade. And mm-hmm. I blame testing for it. And I'm bold in my claim. I'm I'm l- waiting for someone to really take that on. I'm sure someone will. Uh, and and that's fine. Uh, let's let's do that dance. Yeah. I'm curious mm-hmm. about the outcome. Yeah. But what I would say to parents struggling with that right now is, I mean, I'm just going to say it, and then everybody can argue about it. Do as little homework as possible. Do grades even matter <laughs> before ninth grade? They do not. Uh, yes, junior high, there might be like some honors English class you want your kid to get into or something. So just help them, help them as much as they need it. De-emphasize the importance of performing for this lifeless, meaningless education and augment all the hours they're not in school with rich lived experiences that bring meaning into their lives. One thing my mother was just remarkable at, and I was public school educated. I wasn't homeschooled. You know, we went to the symphony. We were always uh, going to these children's theater programs. She had me playing piano. We read every book under the sun. We went to the library every week. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. He would tell me about his law cases and all the discussion around how he built the case and why his side was right and the other was wrong. And we went to sporting events where I learned the games and the scoring and the way the referees <laughs> thought about things and the judgment calls that refs had to make. I had a rich life Mm. on top of school. Mm. And that's what we can build for our children. You do not have to put so much investment in paperwork. Mm. And there's a, there's a line or a part of a chapter in your book that really struck me and was invitation, not insisting. And we are so stuck in that. And again, picturing that parent at school, you know, at home at nighttime when it's homework time, or even myself, I, I fell into that for a certain point where it's just like, sit down, just get it done, just finish it. You need to, you know, you need to do this, but you, you, you bring it up so beautifully where we should be inviting them. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I know it'll help a lot of parents. Yeah. So a couple things, if you're in a school system, being at war with it is not comfortable. So I'm not recommending being at war with it. Mm. If I could wave a magic wand, I'd ask you to devalue grades, Mm. stop valuing grades and be interested in what they're actually learning. And then if there are fulfillments of requirements, you must fulfill with them. Be honest. Mm. You know what? This does need to be done because we're part of the school and the teacher is expecting it. Let me make you a deal. We'll have this snack while we're working on it. Would that help? Would it help you if I rubbed your shoulders before we started? Would it help if we worked at it for five minutes, took a dance party break and came back and did five more minutes? Mm. What if we lay on the floor and use a clipboard instead of sitting at the table? What if you watch your favorite show or play your favorite video game first Mm -hmm. and then we come back and I will sit at the table with you while you get this done? Mm. We tend to go to character and duty instead of actually solving for X, Mm. which is cooperation with a program neither of us believes in. So if you have to make me cooperate with something I don't believe in, you got to sweeten the deal. (laughs) You got to give me a snack. You got to make me want to do it. You got to give me a meaningful connection. You've got to help me get there. Mm. You can't just shame me and blame me into it. It does not work. Here's how you know blaming and shaming doesn't work. Think of the COVID experience around masking. Mm -hmm. Blame Mm -hmm. and shame don't work. Mm -mm. 
they don't know. It, it has to be personally no. meaningful for you to wear a mask mm-hmm. or you will not wear one. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. We already know that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So stop doing it mm-hmm. and start thinking about inviting your kids in. Hey, I know Mrs. Cook is expecting this tomorrow. I also agree with you. It looks kind of boring. What can we do to get through it together? How can I make it less boring? Like that. I know that that'll be very uncomfortable what you just said. It'll be very uncomfortable for a lot of parents, but I'm glad that you said it because especially the the taking away the importance from grades, <laughs> as uncomfortable as it, as it is for parents to hear that, if we think back to our own childhood and when we were young, and I've spoken to some adults who, some autistic adults who struggled a lot when they were kids and their parents kept telling them, you're not doing your best. You need to try harder. And I'm thinking about that being guided by making sure you get good grades. And this one person, Becky, she really marked me. Uh, we spoke a year ago and she said, no child tries to do their worst. Every single right. child tries, every child tries to do their best. But as parents, we have the grades in mind. We're focused on that. And we forget to see the child for who they are, for their own strengths, for their own challenges. And if they are struggling with math, then let's break it down, bring it back to basics. Let's see what they do enjoy. In your book, you mentioned, I forget which one, I think the critical thinking one, you talk about your son loving numbers, big numbers. And I thought about my kids. It's not about sitting down and and doing 21 plus 32. It's about thinking about how far is the moon <laughs> right they love seeing the moon at night my two-year-old will yes. point it and you had you had an example of did you mapped it out on your street with the kids is that we did <laughs> yeah we did scale? the solar system at yeah. the scale of a billion right? and it was amazing when we got to pluto which has since been demoted as a planet yeah. but at the time it still was one. the that child would have to be over three miles away from us and we knew where three miles was because the homeschool mom and i had figured it out mm. so we're like that child would have to be at mimi's cafe <laughs> and everybody was like what you know and it was just like this amazing moment yeah um i want to tell a grade story because this is really fascinating mm. so my kids were homeschooled but my youngest ended up going to public high school and when she Uh, first got there, she, you know, was thrown into tests with scantrons. I didn't prepare her. So her first scantron, she got one line off. So everything was wrong. Right. So that was a humiliating moment where, you know, she didn't get a good grade because of a mistake in the way she did the scantron. The teacher understood, but she was also struggling with some adjustments. There were differences in the way I taught math and the way they taught it at school. And so her initial performance was not good. And over the course of that semester, her um, teacher had said, well, instead of doing the odds or the even problems, do all of them, take all the practice tests, meet with me once a week. And because she was homeschooled, she was like, yeah, that sounds normal. I'll do all of those things. He told us later that he always gave that advice to struggling students and not one student had ever taken him up on it, except for my daughter. So she did all that. And by the end of the semester, she got an A and a, a little award, very improved progress award or something like that. And I was super proud of this. Like I talked about it in my organization and online. And I I was like very proud of her. And she came to the end of that semester and she said, you know what? I don't like this. You've never cared about grades for my whole life. You homeschooled me. Mm. And now you're proud of me for getting an A and an award. Nope. You may not look at my grades ever again. (laughs) And I did not see her grades from that day until the end of college. I've never seen a single test. I never logged into the parent portal 
<laughs> I do not know what she got on any of her classes. I found out just recently she actually got an A in pre-calc and I was like, wow, in high school, <laughs> how did that happen? I don't even know. Um, when I got to her graduation in college, there was an asterisk next to her name in the program and that stood for honor roll. And I was like, I never even knew. Mm. She was her own person. She mm. just got her master's degree as a marriage and family therapist. Here was her strategy for the um, exit exam. I said, how did it go? Did you have to study a lot? And she goes, well, here's what I found out. If you don't pass it the first time, you can take it again in July. So I decided not to study for it because I figured that's a big waste of time. If I can pass it without studying, that's great. But if I don't pass it, I'll know what's on the test and I'll know what to study. Mm. That is such a different way of thinking mm. than the way a person obsessed with grades thinks. Yeah. And her whole way through her education was about her learning what she felt like learning, whether or not she got A's, B's, C's, and she has never told me. So I still don't know what she did or didn't perform well in. That was a great instructive journey for me mm. all the way to this day. Like literally the news about the exam was last week. And wow. as I look at how we are raising our children, we talk out of two sides of our mouths. We say, we trust you. We want you to value learning. And yes. then they say to us, I don't value this learning. And then we're like, yeah, but you got to get an A. Mm. We're lying. Mm. We're actually saying, I value the A and I pretend that I value your learning. Mm. And your child is calling you out on it. So start with a little honesty. Yep. Some immigrant parents were telling me that they've been so trained that grades are their ticket out. And I just want to quickly say, I don't know that pressure. Mm. Like, I don't know that pressure. So it's something I would be interested in hearing more about. Mm. Also curious about how you problem solve that now, especially if you are homeschooling or you're starting to interrogate the way school works. Paolo Freire is the um, education reformer that I really learned a lot from about education. His book, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is so powerful mm. on this topic. So if you're looking for more and you want a non-white perspective, because obviously that's my perspective, mm -hmm. I invite you to consider that because uh, the immigrant experience is very unique and different than mine. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing that up because yes, it's, it is a point that we might not understand. Right. One thing that also struck me when you were speaking is I just had this discussion with a researcher out in Europe this week. She does research on um, understanding parental behaviors. And one of them that they've noticed that has increased throughout the years is, uh, you know, micromanaging and being overprotective and being over controlling mm. of our children's environment. And with the discussion that we just had, that comes up to mind because that's what happens in their education. So It's not just about like saying, do whatever you want, who cares about education? It's about saying we've placed the importance in the wrong parts of their education right. and as a system, it needs to change. But, you know, we can do small things within our home, whether you're homeschooling right. or you're not. I think that there's a lot that we can do within our home to kind of help our child understand and, and continue loving school, hopefully, and learning, you know, for lifelong learning. And, you know, Stepping back is something I learned this year because I would tell my daughter, you know, come on, it's sit down. It's it's 10 o'clock. It's time for homework. Your two brothers are playing now. We have to try to balance everything. And I, I, I thought I was doing it right. You know, you had your specific time for homeschooling and then you go play and then you come back. And she wasn't liking it. And I was like, oh, no, what am I doing wrong? I've messed up. I, I missed a whole year of school and I, I just messed up the whole thing. And 
I started giving her more freedom. So I would say, this week we're going to do some math here, some pages, and I might even have to step back a lot more, but this is what's working right now, is where she has an agenda and she'll say, today I really feel like doing math, so I'm going to do these pages. And then we sit down and she's really into it, versus saying we have a half an hour of this or 20 minutes of that, it wasn't working. So it's not about saying like, do whatever you want, who cares? It's about saying, I want you to take control of your learning. And we can do that with homework the way that you said it before. I think that we could, there's a lot that we can do in everything that you just spoke about today. Um, and we have to unfortunately end this conversation. There's so much to, to talk about, but you know, it really comes back to us being attuned to what our children or what they need, what they're saying to us, what they're communicating to us. And we've sort of lost that because we're focused on, an end goal, a really far goal of them achieving things and being good. We have this vision of them, right? Being a, su a successful adult. Yes. And then everything we do is for them to get to that, but we forget to see them for the five-year-old who wants to play Legos. We forget to see them for that. A hundred percent. The last thing I'll say is this. Everything we do shapes our children. Every single thing we do. So the goal isn't to interrogate what they're doing. It's to interrogate what we're doing, to think critically about how we are spending time with our kids. So if they give us data, I don't like this. That's your chance to interrogate a behavior you're going to choose in response of that. Is this serving the child? <laughs> Does this serve the goal of this individual situation? How can we best achieve that goal? When we move into parental propaganda program, We are asking for our kids to not think critically, to simply obey, yeah. to learn how to ignore their valid response to um, undesirable experiences. And we're asking them to override their thinking faculties. So if we start to notice that, then we can actually engage with them. We can support them, join with them. Sometimes that means doing the math page. Sometimes it means saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what your teacher said, you're not doing it tonight, I can tell. It means taking responsibility instead of delegating it to an external that you're just trying to satisfy to keep life exactly. moving forward, right? So mm -hmm. use these tools to help yourself reflect mm -hmm. on the kind of parent you're being in this particular moment. And then be flexible, test things, take risks, experiment. There's not a once for all solution for any of it. And what a wonderful gift that is for our kids, because then one day when they're adults and something is happening at work or with a, a partner and they have to think through, also think about their needs and what makes sense for them right now in this moment. You know, we have this whole idea of critical thinking being just about like, like the people answer, right? Thinking outside the box yes. and, and so on, but there's so much more to it. And your books have done such an amazing job at teaching us this. I can't thank you enough for the work that you've done. Before we leave, I'd love for everybody to know how to uh, be in touch with you and how to learn from you, including The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So you can visit my website, bravewriter.com and download a seven-day writing blitz if you want to have an experience of what critical thinking and writing looks like and the way we approach writing. Uh, but I do have websites for each book, thebravelearner.com and raisingcriticalthinkers.com. So if you're looking to purchase either of those books or download um, guides that go with them that are free, just go to those websites. I'm active on Instagram at Julie Brave Writer and on Twitter at Brave Writer. 
Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. And I, I hope we can continue this conversation. I had so many other questions, but oh my gosh. there's so much to talk about around this. And maybe next time we'll focus on homeschooling too, because I think we do have a small community, but you know, I think homeschooling and understanding it, it could apply to anybody that has a child in school. It's just a way of thinking and, and I have a lot to learn about it as well. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Thanks. We'll have all her information uh, on the show notes. And again, if you're enjoying the Curious Non podcast, please take a moment to leave a review and rating. Bye, everyone. <laughs>